Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 321 Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Bradley Campbell, president of the Conservation Law Foundation, and in two minutes with Tom, we're talking marathons. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, there's all kinds of reasons to be excited about Worcester. The Boston Business Journal gives us eight. We'll go through them for you as we talk about the woo. And two Hollywood celebrities take two very different approaches to handling the Pete and PR fallout from the college admissions scandal. We'll discuss. Finally, New York City successfully implements congestion pricing to help manage commuter traffic. Is this solution in the mix for Boston? We'll explore. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, how are you? I'm tired today. You're tired. You're, you know, you're the curator <laughs> 100% of this week's episode. A little, little behind the scenes for our listeners. Every week yeah. we get, we probably nominate 15, 20 different potential topics, different people, and we mix and match. And this week, Kyan just dominates, picked all three topics. Taken over. It's a great episode. <laughs> all right, let's get to it. All right, Kyan, hey, let's talk about Worcester. It won't be the first time for us either on this program. The Boston Business Journal, interesting piece this week um, about the resurgence or renaissance um, and, and urban renewal in Worcester. I say interesting because of the timing. Uh, this is not something new. I, I feel like this is a dynamic. I know it is. That's many years in the making and many years making progress. Uh, Worcester is a a terrific city, uh, a um, a model for how mill cities of the 20th and 19th centuries can evolve into very dynamic urban places with different uh, economic and cultural features. Um, they, 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 they pick eight reasons why Worcester is really hitting its stride. What did you think about that? All really on the point. We talked about, we had our WooCast back in September. We did. We had Chris Crowley from Polar Beverage. We had Tim Murray from the Chamber of Commerce. We had... Um, And one of the managers from Dead Horse Hill, um, which gave a great interview. He's a restaurant owner in Worcester. Talked about the brewery and uh, restaurant scene there. So... We've definitely spent some time in our all Worcester episode and what we learned then continued to see a lot of media, not even Worcester, just Worcester media, Boston media have been paying attention to Worcester for a while now. Um, and then, of course, we've got the, the newly named Woo Sox uh, coming to Worcester. And yeah. that's, that's huge. Absolutely. They've got the they've got the uh, the Worcester Pirate the uh, the Pirates, which is the uh, Arena Football League. They've got the um, got a hockey team. They got a hockey team. I've I've taken my kids to both. Lots of fun. BBJ points out eight key things. Number one, just a successful urban renewal in progress. Uh, Worcester, highly diverse population diversity. Arts and entertainment, absolutely. I feel like that's always been part of Worcester. 
Um, it's Agreed. always a place that has had a terrific cultural arts music scene, um, not to mention great performance venues. The food scene, education, maybe not something you always think of. Wish has been able to maintain and enhance a reputation uh, for excellence in higher ed. Um, uh, commercial real estate and business. The BBJ also talks about livability and just the labor force. The fact that there is a strong, good pool of uh, of talented, motivated workers. So it has yeah. really a lot of great things making it up. They still got to fix Kelly Square, one of the worst places to drive in Massachusetts. It's a bit of a mess. It's like an eight-way intersection. <laughs> it's it's absolutely crazy. But um, lots going on in Worcester. Lots going on in Worcester, and actually. It- Skipping forward to what we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is congestion and traffic, Worcester is starting to make even more sense to people to live there. It's, I mean, my commute into work today took well over an hour on the train because my train was 45 minutes delayed. And you can drive in from from Worcester much easily um, or more easily. So it's for people that want to live in Worcester and come to Boston still or need to, it's totally feasible. We have someone in our office that does it. We sure do. Yeah, yeah a, a creative approach to a bedroom community for Boston or elsewhere. And then, of course, uh, a terrific economic and cultural center on all its own. Yes. Um, so that's pretty good. And, and and nowhere near the congestion of other cities no. uh, around Worcester. And their Though, airport is booming. Their airport is beginning, beginning yeah. to boom. Um, that, that uh, what is it, 290? Those S-curves are still kind of... Those will get you, especially at night. you got to be careful <laughs> driving through those S-curves on 290. But uh, lots happening in Worcester. Um, great focus today. Yeah. All right, thanks. All right, Kyan, let's talk college admissions scandal. One of the biggest stories to just capture the public consciousness over the past month or so. Kind of looking at the way two... Very visible um, Hollywood celebrities or former celebrities, Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin have dealt with this. Aunt Becky. Aunt Becky. <laughs> um, and just off, and we're going to, I think you're going to start talking about Felicity Huffman, who um, I'm always someone as a PR person that is cautious of the full frontal strong apology um, because. It, it, you, know, you can't backtrack on you, it. You can't backtrack on it, and, and it means that you are admitting a major, major mistake and a failure. But um, it may have been deployed here by Felicity Huffman in, in, in a very, very powerful and effective way. Um, and and, and her, her counterpart in this scandal has handled things a little bit differently. The issue I have, because um, I haven't really been a big Felicity Huffman fan over the years. Uh, haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, paying attention to what she's done. I have always been a huge William H. Macy fan, her who husband. Who isn't, right? Who isn't, right? He's great in so many different things. Um, Fargo and, you know, uh, Shameless and all kinds of other stuff. But, you know, where is this guy? I- I- is it like only Felicity, his wife, yeah, has control of sort of the... Oh, oh college admissions... You got that right. I'm 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 mowing the lawn and uh, you know or whatever he's doing. Why is she taking 100% of the hit? He's nowhere. I know it's weird. It's weird because did he not know? But then I heard something a few weeks back where he was mentioned in some of the documents as being on the phone with the 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 conspirator behind all of this, um, and somehow seems to have not been named. 
I don't know, maybe they feel like we both don't need to go down for this, so... I guess so. Sh- I, you know. Yeah, she, maybe it was like, I mean, well, she's the only well, one that I'm still hard- a big, I'm still a big celebrity, and you're like, and you were like on Desperate Housewives, <laughs> and one of us needs to keep making money for the family. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it's very strange, but he wasn't named. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk so, about her. Uh, you know, how she handled this. It's funny when we talk to clients who, particularly are in crisis, one of the things we always talk about is if you. What you do will dictate how you respond, right? There's no, you know, there's no quote spinning your way out of, you've got to, you got to do the right thing. You have to put the right steps in place and that helps tell your public story that much, you know, easier. Um, Taking a very full frontal mea culpa on this, I actually think really worked. Um, She looks classy um, and she really owned it. And I think she probably felt like there was no way not to. And if that's what drove her to, you know, it was, it was an eloquent statement. He apologized to students who work hard and do it on the merits and their parents who make sacrifices. She accepted full responsibility, admitted shame, I think feels a lot of a lot of pain for her daughter, yeah. uh, who apparently had no idea, versus, and we're also talking, and I think that, she means was like, she can That means she can sort of write the final chapter on this for her and, yeah. and just be like, okay, this terrible episode is now... It happened, it's behind us, and we can move ahead because there's closure of the way she handled it. She took the plea deal. Yeah. She also didn't spend quite as much money. Um, if I remember correctly, she was more in like the $15,000 range, whereas yeah. Lori Laughlin and her husband are in the $500,000 range for yeah. both of their daughters. Because their, their kids weren't hitting it out of the park as yeah. high school students, apparently. And, and it seems that both of their daughters knew about it. So it's it's two very different situations. Um, you know, Lori Laughlin was signing autographs and saying yeah. hi to fans when she was in Boston, which to me is peculiar. But I guess, you know, you put that Still, actress I mean, face on and you put on a show. She is everybody's Aunt Becky, right? That's yeah. the other thing is people, people know her as this very sweet character, too. This is so out of character for the character that she, yeah. she is. Um, but by not accepting the plea deal, um, she got money laundering charges thrown on. So she went from facing two and a half years in prison to now upwards of 20. I wonder if in real life she's like an ice queen or something. Or yeah, like, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Leona but Elmsley. I think she has been, she's lost, you know, Hallmark said goodbye. I she's know. not going to be on the oh, last oh, season yeah, of she, Fuller she's, House. She's, it, she, it's um, cost her career severely. My guess is Felicity Huffman uh, will still have jobs. Yeah. And um, Lori Laughlin might be in jail. So we'll have to wait but it tough, really it's tough one it, tough week for aunt becky it is two different ways to handle a public crisis i think felicity huffman has has done it well yeah all right all right Kaya, new york city is very close to implementing congestion pricing basically a fee a toll just for entering the city uh or for entering manhattan below, below 60th street yep. so the the very busiest part of Manhattan. It's going to be like around eleven dollars a day. I, I got to assume that that's yeah. It's eleven dollars to get in. It's it's free to get out, right? You, you only pay that. You only pay that one way. <laughs> I think just so. like just like with the uh, just like with the airport, right? You don't yeah. you don't, don't get you don't. Yeah. Um, actually, no, that's not the case. No, because you pay to get out of the airport. You pay to get out of the, yeah, you pay to, yeah. because you're on the pike. Because you're getting no. You, I'm sorry, you don't pay to get into the airport. You pay to get out. You pay to get into the city. Yes. Coming from the pike. Great. Does it sound like I'm just figuring this out after working in the city of Boston for over 20 years? That's anyway, okay. Anyways, $11 a day 
Uh, Not including parking. Then you have to pay to park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Policy makers are looking at this and saying, well, wait a second. New York is doing this. Shouldn't Boston? Boston, we, we, we just overtook New York as ranked number one in traffic congestion. Yeah. Amazing. Um, the issue is, might this be a policy? Could this come to Boston? There is a study that suggests congestion costs the average Bostonian $2,300 a year. Um, I, I okay. like the, the hours in a Some, year. Is, it good. was more than yeah. most people get in vacation time. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling. The, uh, yeah, tr- true, the idling. And, 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 and the, I mean, the, the being stuck in traffic. And if you work for yourself or if you work on an hourly, whatever it might be, it's really costing you, right? Yeah. So um, I think this is something that will be on the table. The question is, how do you implement that and from where? Because there's literally commuters, depending on where you're coming from, you're getting a free ride. Yep. It's not the best ride, but it's a free ride. And then oh. if you're coming from elsewhere, it, it's not free to get into the city because you're using the turnpike or the Tobin Bridge yep. or, you know, whatever it might be. You're coming from, uh, you know, um, elsewhere where you have to pay a toll. I think for it not to be considered an option would be almost silly at this point. We've got to figure – we have to figure out how to wrap our heads, heads around traffic and congestion problems in the city, Um, not even just the city, going outside of the city. Uh, If you talk to anyone who drives into work on a daily basis, I think most people will say that even within the last year, their commute has gotten significantly worse. Yeah. Um, My husband drives from Everett, from Canton to Everett and Everett to Canton. And often if he leaves at the wrong time of day in the afternoon, his commute home is over two hours. That's terrible. That's no way to live. Yeah, You know, Um, he comes home cranky. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't blame him. But then, you know, I was reading this story again this morning when I was on the train coming in here. My commuter rail train has been late almost every day for the last two weeks for yeah. absolutely no reason that I'm aware of other than signals and late turn of equipment is what we're being told regularly. Um, the idea of paying of people having to pay to get to drive into the city is to get less people off the roads well the other problem there is that you need a public transportation system that is prepared to handle the influx and right now it's not not. our our system is still in need of a lot of investment a lot of updates a lot of improvements to get it to a place where it can it really should be serving a 21st century city i I don't know i don't know that a measure like this and and we'll, we'll wrap it up i don't know that a measure like this will necessarily um, dramatically move a, a large population over to public transportation. I think it will it will make people more strategic. I would hope that it's peak time congestion pricing, meaning yeah. from six a.m. until nine a.m. or whatever it might be. Not not all day, not at night. You know, either way, um, I I think it will ch- it will change some people's habits. I think it will create a large revenue pool if we were to do this for infrastructure, maybe public transportation enhancements, whatever. But uh, I agree. I think this thing is is coming one way or the other. I think we have to put all options on the table right now. Right. Um, we've we're we're at we're at a, a breaking point. I think we, in terms we are. of traffic. Yes, and I've and I, I've I've heard you on those days <laughs> where the train is, is is behind, and it's it's not fun. Thanks, Cayenne. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Three Two One Go. Our program is recorded in Studio One O A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masseri.
That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Bradley Campbell, president of the Conservation Law Foundation. This is Suzanne Morris from O'Neill and Associates. This is Jeremy Crockford at O'Neill Associates. And we're here today with Brad Campbell, president of the Conservation Law Foundation, to discuss with him about CLF's work on the waterfront, especially on public access and climate resiliency. Welcome, Brad. Good morning. Uh, Brad, over the last few years, CLF has attracted enormous amounts of attention for bringing attention to the climate problems, particularly down in the South Boston seaport. You have filed some uh, very high-profile litigation about construction in the seaport. A lot of this centers on public access. But your work is also very heavily about what climate change is doing to Boston Harbor. Can you give us an overview? What are the threats along the waterfront in Boston? Well, writ large, as a coastal state, Massachusetts is enormously vulnerable, and uh, Conservation Law Foundation, uh, which is a regional organization and covers all of our New England states, uh, sees this problem throughout the region. Uh, And that problem is that there are climate impacts that are here today uh, and that are uh, imminent in terms of their effects uh, that put uh, public safety at risk, Uh, that put the designed and built environment at risk, and that put uh, areas that are uh, essentially part of the public trust at risk. Uh, And here in the city of Boston, you probably have the most stark examples of that in that uh, we have literally billions of dollars of uh, built uh, infrastructure, uh, a booming real estate industry in and around the seaport, uh, that thrives on the presence of the harbor, the the views of the harbor, the activity around the harbor. And yet, many of the spaces and the places that people have come to treasure on the waterfront, uh, the areas where there is public access, are at risk as we see increasingly uh, the high tides get higher, the storms get more severe, uh, and uh, even ordinary uh, weather or what we come to think of as uh, uh, sunny day flooding where you have you don't have a storm you don't have an an epic uh, extreme weather event you just have the the fact that the the seas are rising uh, and with them uh, the extreme tides that are placing uh, new areas and extensive areas uh, at risk of flooding Um, So to that point, uh, CLF recently released a new report that said 1.6 million square feet of open space in Boston will be at risk of flooding by the end of this century. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the impact of that flooding will be on public access? One concern we have is that uh, in Massachusetts, really for centuries, there's been a public trust on lands that are uh, formerly or currently flowed by the tides. This is the so-called tidelands. And what it essentially means is that the waterfront or portions of the waterfront are a public trust and that whatever happens there has to benefit the public. And as that doctrine has evolved over the years and interpreted by the courts, it has meant that, uh, among other things, the public has has to have access and has to benefit from uh, waterfront uh, tidelands areas as a public resource. Uh, Often that's in the form of places where the park, well, where, where there are parks, uh, where uh, the public has access for paddling uh, and other activities that connect them to the waterfront. And that public trust in some sense has been 
uh, reinforced by public investment. Uh, CLF really cut its teeth uh, as an advocacy organization uh, by filing the, the lawsuit that prompted, forced really, the cleanup of Boston Harbor, which for centuries had been treated as an open sewer. Uh, as a result of that lawsuit and uh, ultimately political leadership and taxpayer spending, uh, billions were spent to clean up the harbor, to make it the centerpiece of the city of Boston that it is today, to make it the resource it is today. Uh, and that public interest, uh, and essentially that public investment means everyone in Massachusetts uh, has a stake in ensuring that public access to the water is protected and to making sure that uh, where there are those areas of public access, uh, that we address uh, the risks that climate change presents. I understand opposing some of these buildings that are that are blocking people off, that prevent you from seeing the water, prevent you from using the water, that act as if they own our waterfront, which CLF helped to clean up and make so desirable. But marshes, parks, open space, isn't flooding them to some degree, periodically at high tides, kind of a good solution to the problem we have? Absolutely. There are important functions that these areas can play in uh, actually mitigating climate risk, in protecting uh, the built environment, and in helping uh, buildings and businesses that are affected by flooding, helping them recover after a flood. And it, it's one of the, uh, I think, uh, important elements of our campaign to protect these areas uh, that sometimes gets lost uh, in the shuffle. It's, we, we want the public to see and for essentially uh, policymakers and decision makers to see uh, that these public assets need to be protected, not just for their own sake, but because of the function they can play in, uh, in protecting communities and families and businesses from the climate risks that are here today and, and the more severe ones that are around the corner. So nevertheless, it's still a threat. So um, what is, where are the next steps in terms of addressing the actual flooding threat? One of the things we have pushed for is to integrate uh, the, the climate risks we know are there today uh, into decision-making, whether it's a permit, whether it's a license for a new building on the waterfront. Uh, you know, we have billions of dollars in construction uh, happening on uh, Boston's waterfront, particularly in the seaport, uh, and yet a very small percentage of those uh, buildings and that new development takes climate risk into account in a serious way. Uh, a small handful of buildings were designed and, and being pursued with uh, climate change in mind, being looking at the lifetime of the structure, looking at the lifetime of the site, uh, and taking into account in the design, in the engineering, uh, the climate risks we know are ahead. GE was a, uh, in their uh, headquarters was a, a great example of corporate leadership on that issue. Uh, they've uh, now retreated from that project, but it was a good example uh, of how uh, you can develop in a smart way, in a reasoned way, uh, and uh, essentially design a, a site so that you reduce climate risk and you re eliminate or substantially reduce uh, the likelihood that climate conditions are going to be a choke point 
uh, for our economy uh, when extreme weather hits. GE was exceptional. I mean, they came in here and they agreed to meet with people like you and to plan for a long future where they would own the building. But if I had a couple of hundred million dollars and a parcel on the waterfront, what's going to stop me from throwing up a building with beautiful views right on the water and then selling it in five years? What can you guys do to make me behave the right way in the face of climate change if I'm in here for the short term? Well, the the pattern you describe, the the example you describe, is actually more much more common than the GE example. Uh, you know, Boston is blessed to have a number of uh, what I'll call hometown companies, in some sense, who see the long term see a long term investment of their of their business and their corporate presence, really of their brand, uh, and they want to make sure their their uh, developments are sound and a, and a great example. But that's really the exception rather than the rule. Uh, for the most part, the developers who you know develop sites uh, are getting permits and, and may or may not be the ultimate uh, builders of the building. Uh, they are being financed uh, through mechanisms in which the loans, the debt for the project is, is widely syndicated. Uh, and they, uh, when they get insurance, the underwriting is one year at a time. So no one in that dynamic uh, really ha- has an, a strong interest or a sufficient interest in making sure that uh, the, the longer-term risks or even the, the near-term risks are fully addressed. And, and that's the dynamic that really requires leadership in government, leadership in terms of setting standards, putting place in pr- the protections that are needed so that when a building is built, when it goes through the approval process, uh, there are uh, reference points to ensure that the building will be safe and that the public will be safe uh, in the in- surrounding area for the life of that structure or project. So what is it that you think that the city of Boston is doing right, and where can they improve in terms of these issues? I think the city of Boston has really taken a leadership role in uh, making the public aware uh, of the climate risks the city faces, uh, making the data available, respecting the science, and, uh, and beginning to incorporate that uh, into government decision-making. Uh, I think, for example, uh, their uh, process underway now to establish flood overlay districts so that uh, those so that those risks begin to be incorporated into government decision making. That's an enormously important uh, effort. Uh, I think their effort, their uh, current uh, setting of standards for the city's own projects, the Department of Public Works projects, setting standards so that they're uh, meeting a, a standard of climate risk. Uh, climate readiness, that's enormously important. Uh, But we really need more to be done in terms of uh, compelling, requiring uh, new development to to design and build to a standard of climate readiness. Uh, And uh, that, you know, unfortunately has been a slower process and one where uh, we really need more forceful uh, imposition of standards and protections so that uh, developers who are investing in the waterfront uh, are investing and building in a way that protects the public interest. Brad Campbell, thank you for joining us here today.
Thanks to Mr. Campbell for joining us. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Good to go. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom. OA on air. Great same to be time, back. same place. <laughs> so, Marathon Monday is upon us. It and, is. And you yourself are a marathoner. Uh, in, in bygone days, I <laughs> was a marathoner. Um, yeah, and it's, it's coming up this coming Monday. The weather looks to be a little chilly and rainy. So I just checked the forecast. And? Right now, my app said a high of 59, which actually isn't bad weather-wise. No, it's pretty good weather to be running in. Uh, if it's not raining, and there's also a lightning bolt on my app, that that doesn't seem ideal. Yeah, that's not a good sign. But I think last year was probably the worst year. But I, I will say the feeling of accomplishment by the thousands of people that will be participating in this year's marathon in Boston, there's, there's nothing that matches it. It's just unbelievably it's unbelievably overwhelming. I can only imagine. Yeah, it's great. You get the runner's high, and then you've got the accomplishment, and then you've got tons of people cheering for you, and yeah, it seems pretty magical. It is. I think it's probably the most paid attention to and attended sports event in the in the city of Boston, and it's, um, I, I must say, starting out in Hopkinton and going through Ashland and, you know, running, running downhill for the first I don't know, 17, 16, 17 miles until you hit um, that, 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 heartbreak. T- that, that tough heartbreak hill. Um, but I'll tell you, the welcome on the part of everybody, whether they're college students or whether they're just bystanders who have an interest in seeing the Boston Marathon, it's, it's pretty fulfilling. So you've run five? I have. All Boston? All Boston. And I must say that here at O'Neill and Associates, we... We had a we have a, a culture of running. We um, do. I don't know how many people in this company now have run, but I, there's at least a half dozen. And in years gone by, we had whole teams of people that ran the Boston Marathon together. Uh, yeah. There there were probably six or seven of us that ran the hundredth marathon. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it was terrific. Um, and so the culture of running here has been has been very particular and and, and very important. Yeah, lots of runners. We've got lots of marathon finishers. Um, Boston, New York, Chicago, spreading out the yeah. Marathon that's right. Love. We have four or five people in the company who have run a marathon, and it's been all over the all over the country where they've run. Yeah. And so I think when they all come back, though, Boston is the marathon, the place where they want to run a marathon and succeed. I feel like that's the way for a lot of people. You don't have to be from Boston to want to run the Boston Marathon. A couple of things. My I, understanding. I, I can't imagine living in Boston and not wanting to run the Boston Marathon, but but. The you know it's it's it has a global pull. Yeah. It's like a magnet, and there are people from all over the world that are here for this week, this weekend, you know this 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 holiday, this Patriots Day that will um, will bring in another Boston Marathon. It's great. It's just wonderful for the city. It's great for the enthusiasm of the city. It's great for the you know the 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 marathon legend. And uh, as I said, there is nothing more exhilarating and having accomplished the 26-plus miles. I'm thoroughly intrigued by it, but equally, if not more so, daunted by the prospect. Well, so it, what is your favorite thing to do when you finish a marathon? Uh, go home, get in a tub, <laughs> put, my, put my legs up, and let the, let the blood just rush back down. Um, do, you have, do you have a beer? It, you have a glass of wine? Do you, you simply you, hydrate? You have, you have a lot of water and a lot of wine, uh, yeah. and you mix the two together. It, uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a wonderful celebration, and, and people... You know, after they go home and get, you know, get uh, kind of re-engineered a little bit, 
come out and celebrate. And it's it's yeah. it's wonderful to do that with people who have participated, whether they've run or whether they've just been a spectator. It's been great, you know, in years past. And I always look forward to it. Yeah, it's a great it's a great day. It's a great day in Boston. Um, you know, for our city, I think uh, it, the tone of it certainly changed a few years ago. Um, with the bombing, but it really, if anything, I think only inspired more people to, so to get involved. It's exactly what happened. My son, who was a runner but never had run the Boston Marathon, made it a point to come the year after the the uh, you know that that terrible disaster and uh, wanted to make put his mark on the Boston Marathon yeah. and just say, you know what, that can't happen to us. We're gonna we're gonna run and make this thing happen in spite of all the ill-minded people. Well, that's yeah. what Boston does well. Invigorating. Yeah. Yeah. So. Happy Marathon Day yeah, to happy everyone Marathon out there. Happy Marathon Day. Good luck to all the runners and, uh, and enjoy it, all you spectators. Stay warm, stay happy, stay healthy. And bring an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Yep, bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your favorite listening platform of choice is. Talk to you next week. <laughs>